morning. Please take your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, as we continue in our series, our short series through the book of John, June through July, um, through John 3 and 4. We're going to begin chapter 4 this morning. And when you get there, please read along with me. We'll read today verses 1 through 15. John 4, 1 through 15. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You may be seated, children, at this time. You may be dismissed to Children's Church. Well, this morning, as we continue in John, um, we look back and we recall that in John chapter 3, Jesus, or John was dealing rather with how one must enter the kingdom. As he instructed Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. It is a supernatural birth a divine birth. It's not something that man can do. Nicodemus had a hard time receiving that message. It took a while for him to understand what Jesus was saying. And today, instead of dealing with how one must enter the kingdom, Jesus is, or John is going to deal with and, and recall Jesus instructing this woman uh, and his disciples who can enter, who can enter the kingdom, who is invited into the kingdom, and drawn into God's people. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah after all, right? He is promised to the Jews, prophesied to the Jews. He comes through the Jewish people. In previous chapters in John, he performed a miracle at a Jewish wedding, participated in the Jewish Passover, cleansed the Jewish temple, and explained the new birth of God to a Jewish leader, Nicodemus. And Jesus himself says later in this chapter, salvation is from the Jews. 
Israel certainly had a special place in the redemptive history, in God's providential uh, giving of salvation and revealing of his plan. But this was a major point of confusion for many Jews. As Jesus comes onto the scene, he is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and he's going to present himself that way, even to this woman, as we'll see next week. But many Jews in Jesus' day expected something very different of their Messiah, which many of you know. They expected a Messiah to come and lead a national and political movement, a revolution, really, to release them from rule of the Romans and to elevate their nation above all the surrounding nations. So naturally, there's confusion about who Jesus was, what he came to accomplish, and who belongs in his kingdom. If this really is the kingdom of God, the God of Israel, who belongs in his kingdom? And it's a question we should ask ourselves today. There may be implicit presuppositions uh, that we may not explicitly say, right, if we were asked, but questions about who belongs in the kingdom, and are there any limitations to who can enter the kingdom based on any human category? For example, prior religious belief, ethnic or national background, maybe a long list of heinous or particularly public sin, political views, economic or social status. Are there any categories that prevent someone from being drawn into the kingdom of God? Jesus begins to answer these questions in John 4. As the evangelist, John is often called, recalls the evangelism of Jesus himself. And the person here to whom he offers his kingdom reveals that although salvation is from the Jews and through the Jews, that Jesus is the one Savior for the whole world. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word, as we come to see what you have intended for us to see by divinely inspiring and preserving this word for us, I pray that you would be at work our only hope, Father, for this to be productive, for it to be effective in our lives, is that you would be at work graciously by your spirit, illuminating the word so that our minds can receive it opening our eyes to truth and causing us to have wisdom and discernment in applying it and hearing what you want us to hear this day so that we change and grow into Christ-likeness, into better, more faithful, more passionate worshipers of you. After all, that is what you are seeking. So, Father, do the work that only you can do. And teach your people, feed us this morning, nourish us with your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So first, if you see in your notes there, if you got an outline this morning, we we first come to a scene change. We just dealt with Jesus in Jerusalem, talking to Nicodemus, John the Baptist, questions of who he is, kind of him stepping out of the way, pointing to Christ. This is the one who I was made to prepare the way for. And he has come, then an exaltation of this Christ, he's above all, and now we have the scene change. And so, as we move from chapter 3 to chapter 4, we have a very different scenario, and we have instruction or explanation as to why that is. 
But imagine it, the lights go down, silhouettes of stagehands are hurriedly, almost frantically moving about the stage, removing pieces of the scene before, bringing on new pieces to set up another scene, and the lights come up. And here we have Jesus traveling with his disciples. And the next act takes place in a town called Sikar of Samaria. Jesus has left Jerusalem, the Bible tells us in the beginning of this chapter, because of growing negative attention from the Pharisees. There's a storm already brewing because they see not only John the Baptist, but now Jesus coming along and, and, and pulling people, drawing people out of their religious grasp, out of their power and hold and sway. And so there's more scrutiny coming to not only John's ministry, but Jesus' ministry, who is making more disciples than John. And so Jesus decides this is not the time. We often hear him saying in the New Testament, in the Gospels, my hour has not yet come. And so it's not time for the conflict with the Pharisees at this point. And so he leaves and heads for Galilee. But he stops along the way in Samaria. Samaria. Most of you know some of the context of of where Jesus is and what was going on between these two people groups. You have the people of Judah in the southern kingdom, and you have the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. Um, And the capital of Israel uh, was Samaria, and and sometimes the whole region was described as Samaria. Sometimes the whole uh, northern kingdom was described as Samaria. Um, But the background, the historical context... Which, which explains for us the shock factor in the disciples as they see Jesus interacting with this woman, in the woman as she sees Jesus interacting with her. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that now, get that out of the way so we understand. If, if we don't understand the context, we're going to miss the significance. So there was animosity, of course, between the Jews and the Samaritans. And John gives an explanation in verse 9, a parenthetical statement. Because, so, that, so she was shocked that Jesus would ask her for a drink because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now this language isn't exactly, doesn't exactly communicate for us what's being said here in context. It doesn't mean there was no business dealings that took place between Jews and Samaritans. For, for example, the disciples now are in Sikar, a town of Samaria, purchasing food. Okay? They weren't too proud for that. They needed to eat. But this phrase literally could be translated, Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. They don't share in common with Samaritans. They had so much disdain for these people that they wouldn't even share the same vessel to draw water from a well. Even in this case, at noon, the sixth hour of the day, in the heat of the day, on a journey. So it was abnormal for Jesus, a Jew, to come and ask for a drink. What produced such extreme division? After the nation of Israel was divided into those two kingdoms, um, the Assyrians had come in in about 724 B.C., captured Samaria. They settled Samaria with their people. Those people started to, to marry Israelites, Jewish people, and they became this, this what Jews would call half-breeds. They became this group of half-breeds, and they had all kinds of derogatory terms that they would use. Um, but they were seen as ethnically unclean. 
They were impure because they had mingled with other nations. And especially because it was an attacking, invading nation, they were kind of seen as traitors. Furthermore, the Samaritans had developed their own religious practice. They still worshipped Yahweh to the best of their ability, to the best that they knew how. But they only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and rejected the rest. And, uh, and they also had kind of built in some of the Assyrians' pagan practices. So they had a real mixed bag of religion. And the Jews saw that and despised it. The Samaritans go further and they build a temple, a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim. And that's where they say worship is to take place. We see this a little bit later in John chapter 4, verse 20, when, when uh, this woman brings up that reality. We worship, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place to worship. And so there's this deep conflict between these two people groups. And so that's what's going on behind the scenes here. That's what, what, what is the foundation to this lack of relationship uh, between Jews and, Gentile, or Jews and Samaritans as Jesus comes to this place. There's also geographical significance. Look at verses 5 and 6. At this place, Jacob had given some land to his son Joseph. And this was very important to the Samaritans. They were tracing their lineage back to Joseph uh, and ultimately Jacob. There's Jacob's well. After he reconciled with Esau, he has Rachel and Leah, leaves Laban, meets Esau again, reconciles, and then settles in this place and presumably digs this well. This well still exists to the day, to this day, and it's producing water. And it was their claim to fame at the time for what it was worth. You know, every, every town has its little slogan, its little claim to fame. And uh, Green Bay, for example, is, is the, the nation's or the world's capital of toilet paper. Not really something I would want to advertise, but um, I guess it was pretty important a couple of years ago. So, uh, you know, everyone has a claim to fame, and this was Samaria's claim to fame, that this, this is where Jacob's well is. This is where Joseph received a plot of land from Jacob, a patriarch of Israel. We are important people. Look at verse 4. I want you to notice a phrase. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Well, did he? Did he have to pass through Samaria? You may have heard a number of, of teachers say, or you may have read it in a book, that um, Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would almost always go way out of their way to avoid Samaria. If they had to travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem or Jerusalem back up to Galilee, they would just go out of their way. The, the path was that you had to cross the Jordan River and then follow the bank of the Jordan, then cross it again to get back into Galilee or Jerusalem. But is that really the case? Historian Josephus disagrees. He said the Jews uh, normally would take this shorter route. It was already a three-day journey, by the way, from Jerusalem up to Galilee. And so whatever could shorten the route, the better, even if it meant having to go through Samaria. So, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. It was the shortest, most reasonable route on an already three-day journey. But is that all that's being said here? I don't think so. Because 
Jesus, if we believe what the word says about him, he is divine. He is God. And he already knows what's coming. He already knows who he's going to meet in this place. And he already knows the person he's going to meet intimately. He knows her history, as we'll see later in the chapter. He knows what she's done and where she's been. And he's seeking her out because he's come to seek and to save the lost. So even though a quicker journey was reasonable motivation for Jesus to take this route, it's also true that there was a sovereignly ordained purpose for it. Therefore, point number two, a divine appointment. We know the divine appointment here, but first the qualification for this term, because I don't really appreciate the way people use this term, mostly because they use it so sparingly, as if there are only certain few really special, really obvious and kind of strange encounters with people that are divine appointments. This was certainly a God thing. Well, aren't all encounters, aren't all relationships divinely appointed? And so I think we just have to be careful about what we confess about the sovereignty of God and his involvement in our lives and only relegating that to certain events or circumstances. Some people in the context of evangelism say, I'm waiting for an open door. I'm just waiting for God to lead the right person along to me who's just desperate to hear the words of life, the words of the gospel. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's a great tragedy that predisposes them to be ready to receive the truth of the gospel. But maybe that's not always the way that it happens. And maybe that's not the only opportunity we should be looking for, right? Because if you're only waiting and looking for an open door, you're not going to be knocking on all the doors God has placed around you already. What if we viewed every relationship God has given to us as an opportunity to point people to Christ? What if making disciples is more an ordinary, everyday way of life than a rare, extraordinary experience? After all, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. If we have the light of Christ in us, it's going to shine to all that we come in contact with. So no detail of your story is unintentional or purposeless. And no detail of this story is unintentional or purposeless. There's, there's no coincidence in God's economy. Okay? As we consider the sovereign God who's imminently involved in his creation and bringing about all his purposes, there are no coincidences. There is no chance. There's no chance that just happened to see Jesus coming to this well On this day, interacting with this woman, it was a divine appointment. Nothing happens apart from God's sovereign rule over the universe. Every molecule, every event, from the moment of celestial bodies to the beating of your heart, is under God's control and is being used by him to accomplish his good purposes. And this is our hope. This is is why we have hope in the middle of trials. This is why we have hope in uncertainty. We don't see what's coming down the path. We don't know what the next step to take is. We have hope. When when evil is perpetrated around the world and in our lives and injustice seems to reign, our hope is that God is using even those things to accomplish his purposes because he is sovereign. He's in control. 
So it didn't just happen that Jesus was sitting by the well at just the right time. It was by design. Verse 7. Jesus is there. It's noon. It's in the heat of the day. And verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, I want you to notice that statement, that phrase right there for just a second. And and notice how completely ordinary that is. Water is necessary for life. You need water for drinking, for cooking, for washing, for for all all kinds of daily tasks. And in this time and place, the women of Samaria would have to come every day to the well to retrieve water just for life. There's nothing unordinary about that. However, in some ways, it was a little unusual. First of all, the time of day normally we know from historical record and just common sense, you don't go in a, in a climate like this in the heat of the day to fetch your water. There's a chance you might drink it by the time you get back home. Uh, that's a joke, obviously. But you would come in the morning or you would come in the evening when it was cooler, when it was more pleasant and easier to carry the water back. But she doesn't come in the morning or the evening. She comes in the middle of the day. The second peculiarity is that she came alone, which was very unusual. Is a matter of safety, companionship, and just the fact that usually they would come at a cooler time of day that women would come in groups. This suggests that possibly, because of what we know coming later in the chapter, her lifestyle may have put her in a place of of social outcast, of being ashamed. Therefore, she's coming alone. Regardless of these peculiarities, her own ordinary task of drawing water would lead her to a person in an experience that was anything but common. So the dialogue begins, and it really is a scandalous interaction, as we'll see in a few ways. When she finds him there, he says, give me a drink. Now, notice what we see about the eternal word of God that we've, we've just looked at in John chapter 1, and we've just seen this exaltation of Christ in John chapter 3. He is God. He is the creator. He needs nothing. He's the eternal word. Yet, he was thirsty. Because we also see in chapter 1 that he became flesh. He took on a body like ours and dwelt among us. He humbled himself and set aside the exaltation and the glory he deserved for being God. And took on the form of a servant. He welcomed the weaknesses and the suffering of being a human like us. It was subtraction by addition. He didn't stop being God, but he took on, put on a human nature as well. We know that he still exhibits, even in this very story, the qualities of being God, the characteristics of Godness as he sees the history of this woman. He knows her mind, he knows her thoughts, he knows her life. But at the same time, we see him being thirsty and being tired. He's weary, which is why he's sitting here and needing a drink. He's truly God and truly man, the dynamic person of all of history. And he is the God-man, and here he is talking to this woman. 
Verse 8 gives us an explanation for why he asks for a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Presumably, they would have had some sort of vessel that they could have lowered down and, and drawn up water for Jesus, but they're gone. They're buying food. This is in part why he asks, but also he's initiating the conversation for a very specific purpose, as we'll see. How does she respond? Look at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, how do we understand this shock? Well, we've already talked about the animosity that existed between these two people groups. That we know. The unwillingness to even use the same vessel of water used for drinking. So this is very abnormal, right, according to her expectation. But look at this quote, this helpful quote, I think, from D.A. Carson. She does not know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. He is the one who touches the leper, and instead of becoming leprous himself, eradicates leprosy from existence. But there's another element of shock. There's another scandalous quality to this interaction, and that is she's a woman. In the culture of the day, it would have been very unusual for a man to initiate conversation with a woman like this in public, especially a woman he doesn't know, and especially as a rabbi. Look at this historical uh, insight Some, though by no means all, Jewish thought held that for a rabbi to talk much with a woman, even his own wife, was at best a waste of time and at worst a diversion from study of the Torah and therefore potentially a great evil that could even lead to hell. That was what some of the Jewish rabbis had come up with, obviously very far from the truth of God's design. But, uh, but this was some of the expectation. This is some of the historical background that explains why this would have been extra scandalous and shocking. So she's wondering how on earth it is that this man, who at this point she only assumes is a Jew, is talking with her. This is supported by the disciples' response. They're, they're murmuring to themselves in verse 27. Look at what it says. When they come back from buying food, they see Jesus communicating with this woman, and they say, in verse 27, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Not just with a Samaritan, but with a woman. Clearly, the disciples also had a lot to learn, right? Of the the value that God has placed in men and women equally. And, of course, who Jesus is inviting into his kingdom. Jesus displayed a willing disregard for cultural and social taboos by graciously pursuing this woman, not just with a request for a drink, but with the offer of eternal life. Invitation into his own kingdom, into his own blessing. The gospel doesn't recognize human divisions that we recognize. I was teaching the children this morning about God's choosing of King David And Samuel, as he goes, he looks at Jesse's sons and he's looking at their outward appearance. And God gives us this great, beautiful principle that though we see what's on the outside and make judgments, 
God sees what's in the heart. And so the appearance is not always what matters. And so Jesus was teaching his disciples, and we see as well, that there are divisions among us, social, economic, all kinds of things, racial, national, political divisions that we might think we should not associate with those people or might actually shamefully prevent us from going to them with the offer of the kingdom. But the gospel doesn't recognize human divisions, but instead eliminates them. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the good, beautiful picture of the gospel that is not discriminatory, but Jesus is inviting people from all the world because he's the savior for all the world. Third, we come to the gift of God. After she expresses her shock for why he's asking her of a drink, for a drink. He says in verse 10, uh, verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, before we get to this point, what do you think of Jesus' evangelistic strategy, right? He comes to this woman and her first Words to her are, give me a drink, serve me, do something for me. Would any of us approach a relationship where we're trying to be so sensitive with the gospel and invite them and draw them in, we would not probably start this way, right? Not really advisable, necessarily. And that's helpful for us because sometimes we hear this taught or we, we look at this as kind of a prescription. Here's, here's an example, a point by point of how we should approach evangelism and discipleship. This is how we should approach people with the gospel. But it's not really a, a prescription for us to follow, but a description of Jesus, who is obviously unique, calling someone to himself. And by the way, in this story, who do you see yourself as? I'd like to encourage all of us that we are not Jesus, we are the woman. We are the woman in need. Still, there are things we can learn. Jesus is masterful at guiding the conversation from what she knows and understands, from physical, temporal things to spiritual, eternally significant things. And that's something we need to become skilled at as well, if we're going to draw people from, from the, the meaningless, futile things that they spend and, and fixate on, spend their lives on, to something that's much greater, we have to be able to do that as well. So, verse 10, essentially Jesus is saying, you don't know me, and you don't know the gift of God, but if you did, you would not be asking why I'm asking you for a drink, you would be asking me for a drink of living water. And at this point, all she sees is the literal. All she sees is the physical. There is no spiritual life for her to understand what Jesus is talking about yet. She doesn't see his glory. She doesn't see his worth. She doesn't see what he's offering her. So what is this gift of God? Well, we see three uh, terms used to describe it, really. It is the gift of God. It is living water. 
It is eternal life, and only Jesus gives it. It's a continuation of the theme of water symbolism that is common in John. Water cleanses and purifies. Water quenches thirst, and water sustains life. The gift of God, on a side note, could also include the Holy Scriptures, which the Samaritans largely wholesale rejected, except for the books of the law, the Pentateuch. So she knew of a coming Messiah, but didn't know really any of the details or the prophecies. Think of all the prophets that they're missing, all of that information. And if she had known that, that gift of God, his word, she may have been more prepared to receive the Messiah and see him for who he is. As it says in Zechariah 14.8, living water will flow out of Jerusalem. So simply, this gift of God, the living water, the eternal life, it is just that. It is, it is life in Christ. It's another analogy. It's another symbol for being born into new spiritual life. And that's what Jesus is offering this woman. So here he is, the Savior, the Messiah. And later in this chapter, he'll tell her that very thing, I am he. Here he is sitting in front of her, and she can't see him for who he is. She has no concept of the living water he spoke of. All she could see was her immediate physical need for water in a hot, arid climate. So she responds accordingly in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Still, only in natural terms. Her mind is limited. She's blind to what Jesus is talking about. Essentially, she's saying, I'm thinking through this logically. You're offering water, but the well is very deep and you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket, okay? So how are you going to get this water? Then she asks the very question that John is answering for any and all who will consider it, who is Jesus Verse 12, she continues, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Who are you, or more appropriately, who do you think you are? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself? There was a disproportional value placed on this this heritage, this lineage became not just an appreciation of God's grace to a people, but a veneration and a superstition. Now consider the irony, though, as Jesus hears this response. Are you greater than Jacob? Well, first of all, Jesus may have thought to himself, I know Jacob, and he wasn't very impressive. He was not a very quality character. He wasn't, he wasn't an example that you, you know, would teach your children to model their lives after. He was a swindler, a cheat, a self-serving deceiver. Yet, Jesus could say, I blessed him and provided for him. I was gracious and merciful to him in spite of him. I know Jacob, and yes, I am greater than Jacob. He had created Jacob, and he was sinless. It's not the only time, though, Jesus would hear a question like this later in John in chapter 8. 
the Jews ask him, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And this is the pinnacle question of John. Who is this person? Who is Jesus? The one who by his life and by his action and by his words demands a response to either believe him or deny him. Jesus is going to continue to be gracious to this woman and show her who he is. So he continues to answer her, to give a little more explanation, a little more clarification about this water that he's offering. Jesus said to her, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water, the water that's in this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. What incredible, amazing, supernatural water this must be that Christ is offering. To have these properties, to to quench thirst for eternity, forever, I'll never be thirsty again. Water that when one drinks it, it becomes in him an ever-flowing spring, welling up into eternal life. You never need to get more of it. It's nothing less than the pouring out of the Spirit of God who quickens the dead, brings the dead to life. But it is the Spirit, John 6, 63, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. At this point, this woman is just flesh. She's thinking only fleshly thoughts. She has no spiritual understanding. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person, which is all she is at this point, does not accept the things of God or understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There must be spiritual life to receive the things of God, the truth of God. But all who come to Jesus for the water he gives receive the promise of God in Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now we know that spirit would continue to work in the heart of this Samaritan woman so she could understand what Christ was offering and receive it. We'll get into that next week. We're going to kind of cut this narrative in half. But at this point, she still doesn't get it. She's still confused. So verse 15, look at what she says to Jesus. This is enticing. I mean, this sounds like a good deal. Water that quenches my thirst. I won't have to get any more water. It just keeps giving. So the woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Oh, she just isn't getting it. She can't see it. She's enticed, though. She wants the water. Don't get me wrong. She wants it. But what she's asking for is not what Jesus is giving. We all know what it feels like to be thirsty. It's a common human experience, right? We need water for life. Most of us probably have never had a situation where we've been so severely dehydrated. We were, you know, our life was threatened by not having water. But to be dehydrated, to be thirsty, especially if you're in a climate like this where it's hot and dry, it's a terrible feeling. 
Your body knows that you need water. Fellow parents of young children, you know that your children think they have felt this way, that they have been near death because they're so parched. It happens as soon as you get in the vehicle to leave from literally anywhere. As soon as the last belt buckle is clicked, you hear from someone in the back, I'm thirsty. Excuse me. I'm thirsty. And you say, what do you say? I'm sorry, we were just at a place that had dozens of water faucets. You could have gotten a drink. And now we have nothing in the vehicle. You'll have to wait until we get home. And of course, they feel like they're dying. We know what it feels like to be thirsty. And this woman knows what it's like to be thirsty and her need of water for daily life. And so this is pretty appealing, right? The idea of not becoming thirsty again in a desert climate sounds wonderful. The concept of liberation from the hard labor of traveling back and forth and drawing water from the well and carrying it home was very appealing. But she had a fundamental misunderstanding. She couldn't imagine the healing water that Jesus was offering because she misunderstood the nature of her thirst. She didn't know her real thirst, what Jesus was talking about. The same is true for us today. If we misdiagnose our problem, we're always and only going to end up with faulty solutions that leave us still wanting. There are all kinds of people today, within and without the church, who have the same misunderstanding as the Samaritan woman. They don't understand their thirst. They don't know what they need. And so, the misdiagnosis, I have need of a better marriage. I'm lonely. I have physical or mental illness or struggles. I have financial hardship, etc. Insert your temporal, worldly problem here. This is my thirst. This is what I need salvation from. My singleness. And when you designate those issues as the primary problem, the primary need, your thirst, then you're going to have a faulty solution. Some of those faulty solutions, under the guise of Christianity, look like the prosperity gospel. Well, God just wants to do wonderful things for you. He's going to make sure that you have plenty of money. He's going to make sure that you're healthy and all of these wonderful things, as long as you give me your money, right? Okay, moralistic, therapeutic deism, you've heard of that one? It's kind of a subscription to a, to a form of morality that we see in Scripture, right? Well, God wants us to be kind, and God wants us to love our neighbor, and those types of things. So we try to do those things. We, we accept the idea of God. Of course, there's a God out there. And he gives me what I need. He's kind of a, he's kind of a therapist. And so he's here to comfort me. He's here to help me through my issues. He's here to make sure that I'm pretty comfortable in my life. But he doesn't really demand anything from me. He never asks me to do anything. He's just kind of up there like a grandfather watching. This is is called wanting things from God without wanting God. 
I want to get the things that he gives without getting him because I don't want any accountability. I don't want any responsibility. I don't want to submit to him. That's too much. So if we misdiagnose our greatest problem, our real thirst, we're going to only end up with wrong solutions that will never satisfy. They will never quench our thirst. Our greatest problem is the sin that condemns us before holy God and renders us spiritually dead. So the gospel must necessarily be bad news before it can be good news to us because we need to know why a Savior came. We need to know what we must be saved from. To be saved from sin is our greatest need because sin cuts us off from this living water, from the life of God, from life with God, and it keeps us hopelessly, fatally thirsty. The well of your thirst is deep, and you have nothing to draw with. Where will you get this living water? Nothing, friends, will satisfy us. It's a lesson even those of us who are believers, those of us who do have life in Christ, we're still learning at times. We're still chasing after things that we think will ultimately satisfy us. They make promises to us to be more pleasurable, to be more worthwhile, more profitable than the life that God has given. But they will always leave us empty and thirsty. Nothing will satisfy us but what we were made to be satisfied with, and that is God himself and nothing less. Every alternative is, as the prophet Jeremiah said, a broken cistern that can hold no water. You will always end up thirsty. The early church theologian Augustine famously said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You need to learn that lesson. And whether you're like Nicodemus... You consider yourself, your life, maybe you're more like Nicodemus, very religious, well-educated, powerful, respected, theologically trained, perhaps. Or maybe you're more like the woman, little education, without influence, maybe in some ways an outcast. Nicodemus was a man, a Jew. She was a woman, a Samaritan. But they all need living water, just as we need living water. Later in this chapter, we'll see what God is truly seeking after and what he's producing with these people he's drawing into his kingdom. It's not just for their own sake, although it is for their sake, but it's for his sake, for his great name's sake. He is seeking worshipers, and those are the people that he's drawing into his kingdom. People who before worshipped themselves, ultimately, idolaters, disregarding the glory and the worth of God. He brings them to himself, graciously pursues them in a personal way, shows them, open their eyes, removes the blindness that keeps them from seeing the glory of Christ, and woos them into his kingdom, to be his people. And there they find purpose. There they find satisfaction that they can't find anywhere else. God is seeking worshipers and he will find them. 
he will call them to himself and it will be successful. And it's a global harvest. Every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group, he's the savior of the world. Whether you've never yet tasted, you know your heart, the Lord knows your heart. If you've never yet tasted this living water that Christ offers, or even if this spring of eternal life is already welling up in you, I implore you all to see the infinite value of God in the glory of Christ, the priest who was also the sacrifice, making atonement for your sin, who offers what you could never obtain on your own, righteousness, the favor of God, every blessing, See the infinite value of the gift of God in Christ and be satisfied in him. Be satisfied in him and nothing else. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3 is an appropriate way for us to close. As God shows his heart, his redemptive heart. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which will never satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food, and climb your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Let's pray. Father, how desperately we need the life that you give this living water whether we've never believed or whether we've been a believer for years, we still fully depend on your gracious and merciful outpouring of eternal life that you are sustaining us, preserving us, causing us to persevere in our faith. Lord, I pray that all of us, by your spirit at work in our hearts, would be able to see Christ as glorious and sufficient for our greatest need. And that we would be satisfied in him. That we might not chase after broken cisterns that hold no water and continue to leave us empty. Be our joy, be our purpose, be our fullness of life, our highest aim. And let us be satisfied in you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.